The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Exploring our oneness with spirit and each other. Unity Online Radio. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show, everybody, and I hope you are having a wonderful day or morning or evening, wherever you happen to be. I am speaking to you from the Great Big Apple, kind of fun to live in a place that's nicknamed for a fruit. I have read a couple of the most amazing books lately, one from someone who was recently on the show, Dr. Garth Davis, whose book is Proteinaholic. How Our Obsession with Meat is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. And then, just as I was finishing that book and thinking, no, no, it can't be over, you know that a nonfiction book is really, really good when it's kind of like a fiction story and you just want to live with it longer. And that's how good Proteinaholic was. I totally recommend that one. And then I got an advanced reading copy of Dr. Michael Greger's book that is called Simply... How Not to Die. (laughs) And he's going to be on the show December 16th. But to just give you a little tiny preview of that, oh my goodness, what an amazing book. Dr. Greger co-wrote that with Gene Stone, who has co-authored and and ghost-written books for some really wonderful people in the vegan and plant-based world. He's worked with Gene Stone and and Rip Esselstyn, and and, I mean, I'm sorry, Gene Bauer and Rip Esselstyn and, and so many other people, and he has worked with Dr. Greger on How Not to Die. And when I got that book, I thought, oh my goodness, I just smell a phenomenon. Now, it's not that I'm fending off job offers from the psychic hotline. I may be wrong about this, but I have been in the book business a really long time, and I have observed phenomena. There was the a 1984, I believe, a Fit for Life. That was a book that sold some 50 million copies around the world, got people eating fruit by itself in the morning and <laughs> lots of salads. There was a 10% uptick in fruit and vegetable consumption in the States for two years because of the Fit for Life. And then I was around for Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, and the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff series. And I felt very close to those books because their literary agent, Patty Brightman, um, was also my literary agent. And I just got to observe what happens when a book goes from just being a book, like all the others, to something that absolutely changes the world. And then, of course, we saw that again in this millennium uh, with Skinny Bitch in, in 2005. And I just feel that How Not to Die is going to be one of those. It's set up in the most interesting way. The chapters in the first half of the book are all How Not to Die from, and then it's a literal laundry list of the things that people are afraid of. 
And maybe if you're really young, you're not afraid of them. But I have a feeling anybody after kind of 45 starts to really think about, uh-oh, heart disease, diabetes, uh, Parkinson's disease, breast cancer, prostate cancer. And it's not that people are obsessing over them all day long, but in the back of the mind, we kind of know that they're there. And just mentally, that's got to be taking its toll. Well, Dr. Greger goes through each one of these serious illnesses and many more and talks about the science, the hard science, and what it's telling us about how we don't have to succumb to this particular condition. And then the second half of the book is comprised of Dr. Greger's Daily Dozen. And that is 11 groups of foods and then a 12th nutrient, which is exercise. He says that exercise needs to be viewed as a nutrient and that the serving size, he gives the serving size for beans and greens and berries and grains and flaxseed and other nuts and seeds and all these foods that have been shown to be highly disease preventative. But he also gives a dosage for exercise. And Dr. Greger explains that the U.S. government doesn't think that people will really exercise as much as the science suggests that we ought to. So the government says, if you can just do 20 minutes a day, that's okay. But the science, says Dr. Greger, implies that we need 20 minutes of vigorous exercise. I'm sorry, 40 minutes of vigorous exercise. That means the kind that makes you sweat. Or 90 minutes of less vigorous exercise. So thank you, Dr. Greger. William and Forbes and I, that is husband, doggy, and myself, um, took a really long walk today. <laughs> we did a five-mile walk that encompassed some errands and then a visit to see my daughter's dogs and let them out into their yard in the middle of the day. My daughter is doing some kind of amazing photo shoot or something. Oh, speaking of my daughter, Adair Moran, for those of you who don't know her or those of you who do, she is featured in the brand new issue of Vegan Health and Fitness magazine, one of our favorite magazines, and I'm really, really honored that they have chosen to do a feature about Adair, who is a stunt performer and an aerialist and a wildlife rehabilitator, and a lifelong vegan. So that's very cool, big page of pictures of her doing stunts and aerial performances and feeding a baby squirrel. So uh, if you subscribe or want to subscribe to Vegan Health and Fitness, do check them out. It's a wonderful, wonderful magazine. You can also pick one up at Whole Foods. This issue also has articles by Robert Cheek, wonderful, wonderful bodybuilder, also a terrific article about John Lewis, the young guy who's an athlete and the brains behind the badass vegan power cookies, which are going to be filling the Christmas stocking of everybody that I know this year. Love the badass vegan power cookies. They are green. They are bright green because there's spirulina powder in there. Makes you feel like you're doing something really good. Plus, they're yummy. And what else is going on? Oh, goodness, I'm, I'm in an article, too, although mine's not in print. This is something, if you Google Ohm Factory, Ohm like yoga, Ohm, Ohm Factory, and, and my name, Victoria Moran, you can find the article that I did for them about how I am madly in love with aerial yoga. If you listen to the show regularly, you know that I, I finally have a sport at low this late date, <laughs> I found something active that I absolutely love. And so uh, there's an article there and a great big picture of me hanging upside down and having a really, really great time. And one other thing to let you know to check out this week, and then we'll take a break and bring on our wonderful guest, Donnie Moss of the online animal rights magazine, Their Turn, um, is the blog this week at MainStreetVegan.net. And the post is written by Carmela Lanai Giardina, who is known far and wide as half of the food duo. They do those wonderful Twitter uh, food chats a couple of nights a week. She's also a really, really great um, tech whiz in, in the vegan world. But she's actually turned her brilliance this week to writing about shopping. 
holiday shopping for whatever holiday you happen to celebrate around this time of year. If it's one of the ones where people get gifts, and I think most of us are kind of into that, she's going to tell us in this blog post how to shop vegan style. And you know what? That is just elevated shopping for me. Because I used to think, oh, I just have to go buy this stuff. You know, another day, another shopping cart. Well, you know what? Today, my shopping cart is saving animals. It's supporting people who are doing great things in the world. And I just love shopping. Not a shopaholic. Don't do it compulsively or anything like that. But, you know, it's a really good thing when you know that you can spend your money on something that doesn't hurt anybody and just might help somebody. Great way to live, don't you think? We're going to take a break right now, and then we'll be back with Donnie Moss talking about chimps and horses and what it's like to be an animal protector in 2015. Stay with us. If Unity Online Radio has helped you grow spiritually through programs like this one, Please consider supporting this online radio programming. Visit www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Thank you for helping us continue to serve as the voice of an awakening world. What if you could experience vibrant health? Help heal the planet and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. What if you were intentional about your life, committed to having more energy and being more vibrant? Join Reverend Temple Hayes, spiritual leader of First Unity at Unity Campus in St. Petersburg, Florida, as she guides you on a journey to an intentional and energetic life. Empower your life and fully express the wondrous energy, love, and joy you hold in your wildest imagining. Joyfully and actively know that more important than what happens after you die is the deeper and enriching concern for what happens while you're living. How can you experience an incredible life right now? Learn how each week on The Intentional Spirit. Seeing and Being, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Central Time, right here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, my lovely listeners. It is such a pleasure to have all of you with us today and also such a pleasure to have our next guest. I was actually introduced to this guest by somebody else that we all know and love, and that is Jane Velez Mitchell. You can look up her show. She was on with us um, several months ago, and now she's got Jane on Unchained. So she's all over the Internet doing amazing things for animals. And so is our guest coming up, Donnie Moss. Donnie is a New York City-based animal rights activist. He runs the online animal rights news magazine, TheirTurn.net. 
In 2008, he made the award-winning film Blinders that documents New York City's controversial horse-drawn carriage trade. From 2009 to 13, he led a successful campaign to end the political career of an elected official running for mayor who had blocked animal protection legislation in New York City for eight years. You can find Donnie on Twitter at Their Turn and on Facebook also Their Turn and the website TheirTurn.net. Oh my gosh, Donnie, I'm always jealous of people who manage to get the same thing on all their social media. So that sounds like good karma to me. You must be doing something right. Trying, like you, to make the world a better place for animals, Victoria. (laughs) Oh, and sometimes that's that's a job. So tell us just a little bit about you as a person. Were you a little boy who loved animals? I was, and I'm the quintessential person who had a disconnect between uh, my own values and my behavior. I, as a kid, I I loved to when my mother would pull to the side of the car, uh, side of the road in her car, and we would you know play with a, a stray cat. And we always had a, a, you know, a dog when I was growing up. And I loved these animals. Um, but never did I make the connection between the animals who I loved and the animals who I sat down to eat and the animals who I wore and, and the animals we went to see at the circus, et cetera. Um, I grew up within uh, just a few miles of where Lolita, that captive whale, has been held in a tank for you know, now 40-something years. Um, I just didn't know. I didn't understand. Um, But like everyone else, I eventually saw the light. Well, I don't think everyone else has seen the light. (laughs) Like like everyone else who has seen the light or in the movement, I should say. Exactly. I know what you mean. And I hope that was a fabulous Freudian slip that is uh, a precursor to things that will be happening very, very soon when everybody does indeed make those connections. So when you describe yourself as an animal rights activist, Tell me what that means, because, you know, some people, they think activist and agitator. It's, it's not necessarily a complimentary word. Tell me what it means to you. Uh, well, to me, it means that somebody who's fighting for the right for animals to be left alone. Um, I think uh, Ellen DeGeneres, you know, used to joke that, you know, she's not, you know, animals aren't fighting for the right to, um, you know, uh, to vote and or to uh, get married, um, they just want to be left alone. And it's so little to ask of us, other animals on the planet, you know, humans, to leave them alone. And we can't even give them that. Um, and I think that it's a term that, yeah, that does have a negative connotation, but I think it's important that we um, spin that and make it into a positive. Uh, and so, I, you know, I choose to use the, right, uh, the, the phrase animal rights activist, but like many other activists, I'll adapt, to, I'll adapt my language and my approach based on what I think is going to reach people's minds and hearts. A pragmatic man, a man after my own heart. <laughs> I used to know a woman, oh, years ago, and we were, had a little animal rights group back in Kansas City, and oh my goodness, the 90s, maybe it was even the 80s, and she would say, I don't love animals, I hate cruelty. <laughs> It's like, you know, whatever you want to call it. If, if you're with us, you're with us. So tell us right. a little bit of, of your journey. How did you get from uh, where you started out to here? Uh, well, it started in 2004 when I went to see Super Size Me. Remember about the guy who ate nothing but McDonald's and threw up a Absolutely. kidney or something? Yeah. And that, um, I was so jarred by that movie that I read Fast Food Nation. And after I read that book, I quit eating land animals. But that was it. It took me another year before I um, saw additional footage, probably Meet Your Meat, um, the, you know, the video narrated by Alec Baldwin about um, animal agriculture. And when, I think it was that video that, was, um, that turned me vegan and helped me connect the dots between the animals on my plate and the animals who were suffering uh, for my clothes and for my entertainment and, and in laboratories. And so I was living in London at the time, and I went to my first fur demo at Harrods. And when I moved back to New York shortly thereafter, I saw the carriage horses, and I thought, wow, these animals are being exploited too, and right in my own backyard. And that's when I joined the movement to ban horse-drawn carriages 
and I picked up a camera and I ended up what what should have been a, a quick YouTube video turned out to be you know, a, a documentary film. Mm, amazing. Well, we have something in common that we were both living in London when we went vegetarian. And, oh wow. uh, Yeah, I think like a lot of people, for me, the vegan took longer. I'm just so glad that um, that I got it. But tell us about the the film. I want to know about blinders, and then we're going to talk about the carriage horses, but somewhere in here, let's make sure that we talk about documentary filmmaking for people in the animal rights movement. When it was published that you were going to be on the show, I heard from a couple of people who who want to do documentaries about various aspects of this. So they're asking what your story is, how that came about, how you did it, if you would advise somebody else to do it or run as rapidly as possible <laughs> away from their camera. So uh, just well, to give it, us it, the blinder story. Sure. Well, first of all, I should say it's a lot easier now than it was when I started, uh, when I picked up a camera back in 2007. Um, and that is because, you know, these mobile devices have improved so dramatically that I make all my videos now. Granted, they're not documentary films being projected onto big screens, but I make videos that go viral on social media with just a camera phone. And anybody can do that who has a camera phone now. And it's so easy because you can literally pick up your phone, go to a protest or some sort of event, whatever it is you want to film, uh, quickly download that footage onto your onto your ca- uh, computer and there all there's all this you know editing software that comes with computers now i use imovie and you know you drag the footage into imovie and you create a story it's so consumer friendly it's so easy and i would encourage everybody who has an interest in doing it to try it out um, if you have an apple i i believe apple stores pr- give free classes in how to use imovie but i i didn't even need to take a class it was so easy um, and self-explanatory and so it really depends on what you want to do. If you want to make a feature-length documentary or, or a TV-length documentary that's going to air on a big screen or on TV, then the quality probably needs to be better than that which is available on a, you know, the audio and video on a, on a typical camera phone. Uh, and so that's a different story. And that's what I did for Blinders. Blinders was sort of a bigger deal than just picking up a camera phone, which wasn't really available at the time anyway, I don't think. Um, so what happened with blinders is I was protesting uh, with the coalition to ban horse-drawn carriages, and I was out there week after week, and I thought, you know, I could do more than this. Why don't I make some sort of video? There's never been a documentary about this. But I, I never set out to make what turned out to be a 50-minute uh, TV-length documentary. I just thought I was going to make, you know, something eight minutes, something I could post on YouTube and educate people about the plight of the carriage horses. But one expert witness led to another, one um, you know, accident witness led to another, and it, tur- and it, and it just sort of um, snowballed, which was fine. I, I, was, I was thrilled that that was happening, that all this information was coming in. I had never made a documentary. I'm not particularly technically savvy. Um, so I believe that if I can do it, anybody can do it. Um, and uh, it just happened organically. I learned how to interview people, um, and I, I slowly collected all the footage. And, and in Final Cut Pro, which was sort of more professional video editing software, I learned how to use it. I, I got people to help me, and I, and I cut together this film that ended up being much bigger than anything I anticipated. Oh, that's wonderful. And can people watch it today? Yeah, it's on Amazon.com. Uh, if you just type in Blinders the movie, I, and it's on Vimeo. Dot com, um, and eventually I would like to make it just available on YouTube for free. Right now it's a $2 download uh, to stream it on your computer because I signed up with a distributor, uh, which in hindsight I shouldn't have done. Uh, but it was my first project in Live and Learn. I didn't make this for commercial purposes. I don't think many people make documentaries thinking that they're going to see a return on their investment. I did, this was a labor of love for me, and I knew that the money that I, I put into it, was no, I was never going to see it again. And so that's why I regret not just finding a place to put the whole movie up for free. And it will, it will be eventually. 
Oh, and there are no mistakes. And sometimes I think if you pay your $2, you pay closer attention. You know, if it's That's free, you're liable to be have it running while you're scrambling the tofu. So (laughs) that's that's very important. So everybody do check out blinders on Amazon and on video on Vimeo. So for people who are outside the New York City area and may not understand about the carriage trade here, I think it's probably similar in other cities that haven't abolished the the practice of, of horse drawn carriages running tourists around and about. Tell us about what's going on here in New York. Well, you're right. I mean, the problems that we have here in New York are mimicked in urban areas all over the world where horses are pulling buggies in the congested city streets. So it it sort of coalesced for me when I had a seasoned large animal veterinarian say to me, there are certain conditions in New York City that simply cannot be uh, fixed in a way that would make horse-drawn carriages humane or safe. And then I started to look more deeply into what each of those issues is. And they're so simple, uh, but most people wouldn't have thought them. First of all, horses are prey animals. They're nervous animals who spook. And when a horse spooks in a pasture, it's really no big deal most of the time. But when a horse spooks in midtown traffic, he or she becomes a weapon bolting down the street, crashing into cars, pedestrians, bicycles. And it's happened many times over the years in New York City. And there's no amount of regulation or enforcement that could prevent a horse from spooking. Um, And so if you take all the other issues off the table, that is in and of itself a reason we shouldn't have horse-drawn carriages in the city. New York City has no pasture. Horses are grazing animals. They run, they roll, they graze, they interact with each other uh, because they're herd animals. And they are unable to do any of those things in New York City. They are either trapped between the shafts of their carriage or inside a small stall on the second or third story of a warehouse building on the far west side of Manhattan. What kind of life is that? They've been stripped of the ability to do anything that comes naturally to them. And when they can no longer pull carriage, if they survive the streets, but they can no longer pull a carriage, the vast majority of them are sold to the what they call the meat men and transported across the border into Mexico or Canada to be slaughtered for meat, which is sold abroad. Um, and those are just a couple of the reasons, Victoria, why we cannot have horse-drawn carriages here in New York City or in any urban area. Well, I know many urban areas, I'm, I'm thinking of Mumbai, <laughs> you know, no longer have horse-drawn carriages. And it amazes me that New York City, which is my adopted hometown and, and which I'm just crazy about, and, and it seems so sophisticated. It seems as if so many smart, smart people are here. Why can't we figure this one out? It's such a tiny little industry, and yet it seems to have so much power. Well, yeah, and, and you know, and, oh, history will eventually inform us as to why they've been able to um, operate for so long in spite of the fact that the industry is so egregious. Um, we know that um, all of our media outlets support the horse-drawn carriage trade. Every uh, editorial board, the Daily News, the Post, and the New York Times have on numerous occasions, posted editorials supporting the industry. Um, invariably, there's some sort of conflict of interest. The New York Times editorial board, the head of that board, has a brother who's a competitive carriage racer. And you know what people say, Victoria, once you go after, once animal rights activists go after one issue, then they'll go on to the next. And so um, that's probably why the New York Times doesn't come out uh, against horse-drawn carriages. What they have said over the years is that the horses should be kept in the park, which is something that's never going to happen. Um, New York uh, Central Park is a landmark. They're never going to build stables in Central Park and clear the streets of traffic and pedestrians in order to accommodate a private all-cash business. Um, so, And then there's uh, the industry. The carriage industry hired the Teamsters to be their lobbyists. So now the public is under the impression that this is some sort of labor uh, that, that, you know, the, that the uh, carriage operators are part of a labor union and that they're, we're going after you know, uh, blue-collar workers. And it's, it's all a fabrication. Now, the mayor, as you know, Mayor de Blasio, part of his campaign platform was banning horse-drawn carriages. He said it in the press over and over and over. Watch me do it on day one. 
there's no place for carriages in modern-day New York City. Um, but two years have gone by almost, and he has not yet fulfilled his promise. So uh, the fight continues. Um, it will continue until these horses are taken off the streets and out of harm's way. So did he have the power? I remember when he was running and said that he was going to do this on day one. I thought, I didn't know carriage horses fell under executive order. I thought that had to be something that the city council was also in favor of. Well, look, I, I can't answer that question with absolute certainty. What I do know is that the Parks Department and the Central Park Conservancy have the power to decide what vehicles come in and out of the park, uh, right? So the Conservancy could say, you know what, these carriages have left divots in the roads, which are dangerous for pedestrians. There's manure all over the park left by the carriage drivers. There have been accidents between bicyclists and carriages in Central Park, and there have been many spooking incidents in Central Park. So they could curb the industry, and, and the Parks Department reports into the mayor. The Department of Health um, could, uh, could also sort of say there are certain things here that simply are uh, you know, unhealthy and unsafe for the, for the city of New York. There are, if the mayor was really committed to it, he could have found a way to use his executive power to take the horses off the streets. Victoria, imagine this. What happens tomorrow if there's a uh, – keep in mind that when people are in a horse-drawn carriage in Times Square at night, for example, people aren't wearing helmets. They're not wearing – seat. The, the, the passengers are not wearing seatbelts. There's no – these are uh, – the, there's no doors to these carriages. They're in these open contraptions driving in amongst motor vehicles. What happens if a horse spooks in Times Square, bolts down the street, and children go flying out of a carriage – onto the pavement. Then what happens? Is the mayor going to still say, I'm sorry, I don't have the power to do this. Uh, you know, we have to defer to the city council. No, a strong leader would, for on the grounds of public safety, would say, we've got to get these horses off the streets now. This is an emergency. Look what's, you know, do we need to wait for that to happen, though? That's what it feels like is happening now. Um, it so we'll it does feel like that. It's very frustrating. And it Reminds me of a certain segment of the animal rights movement that believes that all of these campaigns that we care about, whether it's something that has to do with companion animals or horses or a particular kind of farmed animal, a circus, a zoo, whatever it is, that, that we're spinning our wheels to spend our efforts on these and that anything other than universal veganism is just not going to bring about the kind of change that we want. H how do you answer that argument? Well, I don't think you, I mean, a lot of people get to veganism by um, being introduced or exposed to one particular issue. And I think blackfish is the perfect example. The, look at the blackfish effect. How many people have been brought into the animal rights movement because they were exposed to blackfish through mainstream media and now have taken an interest in other the plight of other animals and have yes. adopted changes in their own life, lifestyle. So I think that these campaigns are, in individual campaigns are extraordinarily valuable. And also you can't dictate what people take an interest in. Um, the horses spoke to me. Well, every issue speaks to me, quite frankly. But I jumped into the horse issue because it was something that was happening right in front of me. And in New York City, you're told if you see something, say something. So I said something. Um, and, <laughs> quite um, eloquently. And over, thank you. And, and, you know, and over time, I've become active in other issues and I live a cruelty life free lifestyle myself. Um, but I wouldn't underestimate the power of these individual issues. And also we do win on individual issues. It's slow, but, but there are victories. I mean, you know, the, just this week, uh, SeaWorld announced that it was going to cancel its orca shows. Granted, the orcas are going to be still still be held captive, but it's a it's a step toward victory. What was it several months ago? Ringling announced that they would phase out the use of elephants in circuses. It's not a complete victory, but it's it's something. And yes, if we didn't is. have these single issue campaigns, then these individual victories wouldn't be, and these individual animals who are being helped, you know, we we wouldn't be seeing those that those kinds of results.
I agree with you. That's that's a great, great answer. So before we leave the horses, we're going to move on to another campaign that you're actively involved with now. But what do we do next about the horses? To me, I feel, Donnie, that we're really fighting with tradition. And I think especially as we're coming into the holiday season and people who don't even consider themselves traditionalists get really traditional and if anything has been done for a long time, all of a sudden it looks good no matter how bad it is. How can we overcome that? First of all, I always say to anyone who will listen that tradition is no excuse for animal abuse. And if, if Barcelona or Catalonia, the region of Spain where Barcelona is, can ban bullfights, which is arguably a real tradition relative to horse-drawn carriages, which are a tourist concession that you know, dating back 60 or 70 or 80 years. Um, if Barcelona can do it, we can do it, and others can do it. And, uh, you know, there was a time where almost every family who could afford to have a turkey as the centerpiece of the Thanksgiving table had a turkey because of tradition. But people who have become more evolved are moving to some sort of other celebration roast um, because the tur- turkey tradition uh, now that people know more about where those turkeys come from, um, no, you know, there's, there's simply there's no justi- justification for it. I love it. It's so wonderful to be alive now. We're not nearly where we need to be, but oh my gosh, we're, we're in the thick of it. And that's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. So let us move to another campaign that is less well-known, and that is the abandoned chimpanzees. Just start from the beginning. Tell us what's going on there. So in May, um, I got an email um, with a link to an article in an African publication that was, you know, it was almost difficult to understand because it was so poorly written in English, but um, um, state reporting that the New York Blood Center, which had opened a laboratory to experiment on chimps in Liberia back in 1975 and closed it in 2006 that they cut funding to the surviving chimps. Um, And so basically in 2006, the New York Blood Center shut down its chimpanzee laboratory in Liberia. There were a certain number of chimps left. All of the survivors were moved to these six islands near the capital of Liberia. And the New York Blood Center made a public commitment to provide these survivors with lifelong care. And by lifelong care, we're talking the absolute minimum. They were being brought food every other day and sometimes less than that. And these were chimps who were totally dependent on humans for survival. There was very little to to know natural food or water on the islands where they were moved to. And they were sick because they had been infected with diseases and they had been, you know, the subjects of experiments for years. So these were chimps in trouble and they were getting just the most minimum basic care, basically food and water. And after seven years, the New York Blood Center said, these chimps, we've changed our mind. We're no longer going to care for these chimps. We don't own them on paper and we have no contractual obligation to provide uh, food and water for them. So they cut the funding entirely leaving them there to die. The whole thing is so surreal. Um, so I learned about that in May, and, uh, and I posted a story on my website. I contacted the New York Blood Center to find out if this was true, and I couldn't get a response, and I just posted a story on my own website. And 10 hours later, the New York Times ran a story. Um, it, and that gave us the tools to start a grassroots campaign to hold the New York Blood Center accountable and to demand that they fulfill their promise. So this campaign has been going on since May. And the chimps are still there. So what's going on with them? How are they holding up? Sure. So so when the news broke uh, to the public that the uh, New York Blood Center was walking away from its commitment to care for the chimps, HSUS started a GoFundMe campaign to collect money to pay the people who used to work at the laboratory, the locals in Liberia, who knew these chimpanzees, to go once a day with, on boats to deliver food and water. And so I, my understanding is that the water systems on each of these six islands were fixed, 
and that they're now receiving daily deliveries of food, which, quite frankly, is not enough. I mean, would, would we want to eat just once a day? Uh, but they're surviving now, and they're in better shape th than they were when the New York Blood Center was, quote, caring for them. Uh, but the, um, you know, the, the, it's not a sustainable solution. Getting advocates and people who care to donate money for the rest of these chimpanzees' lives, I mean, they could live for, there could, they could be, they could exist for another 40 or 50 years, some of these chimps. It's not sustainable. The New York Blood Center has to reinstate the funding, sit down with the coalition of about 36 um, sanctuaries and other advocacy groups who are working on a long-term solution, uh, a proper sanctuary for these chimps. And they can do the work, but they need the New York Blood Center to pay. And so I'm working with many grassroots activists here in New York City on the protests. We are hitting the streets. We're going to the homes and the offices of the board members, and we're going to continue to do that until they reinstate the funding. And it can't be that much. I mean, it, even no matter how much it is, they they still need to do it. But, you know, that they're acting like it's millions. It's a pittance. It's so remarkable. That's what's so incredible about this. The commitment is twenty to $30,000 a month to provide food and water for these chimps. It's nothing. Uh, for an organization that has $400 million in assets, whose CEO, this is a charity, mind you, whose CEO has a salary of $1.3 million a year, the chairman of the board of directors is a multi-billionaire real estate magnate in New York City who lives just a few blocks away from the blood center. How these people could cut funding with so much money, with surrounded by so much wealth, could cut funding to these chimps who, who, uh, were, who gave their lives, not willingly, to this laboratory. It's just, it's so, it's inhumane is not the right word. It's unconscionable. It, it is indeed. And, and what is the New York Blood Center, just for people who don't know? Sure. Well, it's our big blood bank for the tri-state area. And so what they do is people, they have a donor, you know, places where people go to donate blood for free, and then they turn around and sell the blood to hospitals. And that's one of the ways they make money. And they also have major corporate Sponsors. When you think about it, you know the New York Blood Center. It's a very sort of uncontroversial kind of charity. So a lot of corporations get behind supporting the blood center so that they could say they're doing you know something good. They have their employees donate. MetLife and Citicor have. My understanding is that they have blood donation centers in their own corporate offices where their employees go and give blood, and then they get tax write-offs for it. So there's a, a financial benefit, is my understanding, to the corporations that donate to the blood center as well. Mm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and so they, you know, we think we're, we, you know, we go in and we donate our blood, and, and we think that blood is then donated to people who need it, but the New York Blood Center turns around and sells it. Uh, they have a mammoth building on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, a very a chic neighborhood, and that, that their real estate alone is worth tens of millions of dollars. And they don't have a, a, a few pennies to feed these chimpanzees. It's, you know, it's so interesting with all of, of the animal issues. There's so much more than meets the eye. I think you would talk to anybody who would be interested in listening to this program, and they would say, you know, I absolutely oppose, you know, the the use of animals in laboratories, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't think about well, what happens to the ones that don't die in the experiment. I think it's sort of like people always used to think uh, about dairy cattle. Well, when they can't give milk anymore, they're out to pasture, but there is no out to pasture. And what you're telling us is that there is rarely out to pasture for uh, laboratory victims as well. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, my, my assumption um, and, uh, was that most of the animals who enter a laboratory don't, don't exit alive. Um, I think in the case of these chimpanzees, the people who worked, who were conducting this research and running this laboratory in Liberia, and the caretakers on the ground in Liberia um, were, became fond of these chimpanzees. I mean, they're so like us. They're 99%, you know, genetically uh, similar to humans. 
And so I think that in spite of the fact that they were conducting these horrible experiments on them, biopsies and anesthetizing them, there was a fondness for these chimps. And the people who worked at, that, at, the, at the blood center at the time in Liberia made a promise that these chimps would be cared for after the research was done. And they're horrified by what's happened yes. and have spoken out about it. Uh, but it's a great question uh, and one that I'll look into further about what happens to the vast majority of animals who, uh, who are subjects of, of experiments. Yes. Yeah. And we can find out more about this project and these chimps at theirturn.net, correct? Oh, just, yeah. If you, if you type in chimps or blood center or whatever into the search function, there are, I've probably written, you know, over a dozen articles and, and videos about this campaign. And I have to say, Victoria, the grassroots effort is working. We staged three protests at the office and home of one of the board center uh, board members. Uh, her name is Lori Glimpshire. She is the, she was a, uh, she's the um, dean of Cornell Medical College. And we went to her school, and as her students and faculty and staff were filing out of the building during rush hour, we protested three days, and same at her house. And she resigned from the board. Um, she won't admit that she resigned from the board because of the protests, but we know that's why she did. Oh. And, uh, and, uh, and, but we're going to continue to protest there. We have one this coming Monday because her decision to walk away from her crime um, does nothing to help the chimps. And so while it's a milestone in our campaign because it shows us that our activism is having an impact, it's, it's not enough. She has to step forward and demand that the New York Blood Center reinstate the funding publicly, uh, or the New York Blood Center has to do the right thing. Only then are we going to walk away. Well, your commitment is incredibly admirable. So tell me what it's like to be you. I mean, do you feel burned out sometimes? Do you stay up all night? Are you driven? What's your life like? Well, I'm one of these activists who sort of lives, breathes, and sleeps the animals. Um, I don't, every, almost every decision I make, every move I make, I have the animals in mind. If I'm in an elevator and I have the opportunity to somehow engage someone, um, I will. Uh, it's just, it's just the way I'm wired. And I think a lot of activists are wired that way. Um, you know, I had conventional jobs my whole life until recently in public relations, public affairs. And um, I was never, you know, I didn't feel like I was making a difference. Um, now I'm, I'm in a position to be able to uh, help animals full time. I don't, I don't have an income from doing this. This is, you know, I have a supportive partner. And um, I'm, I'm taking advantage of the fact that I have the ability to do this, to actually do it. And, um, and I feel like I'm, I'm making a little bit of a difference. And, you know, uh, Victoria, I do think it's a social justice movement in its infancy, um, and I think we have such a long way to go. I mean, there's so many billions of animals who are, who are killed each year and, and live these horrible lives. Um, so it's a movement in its infancy um, on the one hand. On the other hand, I think the world is paying closer attention now. And I think that when the, the Supreme Court um, granted um, same-sex same -sex couples the right to marry and that social justice movement sort of peaked, I think it was like it was like the animal's turn to step to the front of the line. At least that's how I like to think of it. Um, it's their turn, and that's why I named my website theirturn.net. Oh, that gives me chills. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I think you're right, and I also think that this particular movement is revolutionary in so many ways because even though we still have a ways to go with so much of, of the human rights stuff, I was – doing a, a TV shoot over by John Jay College last week, and that's the Criminal Justice College here in New York. And there was a student with a big book about human trafficking. And I said to her, oh, my goodness, that must be a very, very difficult course to sit through. And we walked a few blocks, and she told me that that was one of her interests to pursue and how she wanted to really help the world and all that. And she said, but, you know, when I finish with this project that I'm doing now, I'm going to take some time off, and I'm just going to go work at a farm. And I thought, oh, my gosh. <laughs> 
for for what you want to do with your life. That is going to be an eye opener. And so I told her about um, Project Animal Farm and that lovely young woman, um, Sonia Faruqi, who did just that. She went to work at an organic dairy farm thinking everything would be wonderful. And it totally opened her eyes and, and turned things around. So there is plenty to do, but what's so interesting in this animal rights movement is I think this is the first time humans have ever been asked to expand their acceptance, their awareness, their love completely beyond humans. And, you know, we've had trouble with with ethnicity and, and race and gender and sexual preference and all those kinds of things of accepting our fellow humans. And now we're being asked, let's break through all of that and go to the other creatures. So it's a tall order, but it's also really exciting. And when I talk to somebody like you, I think we're up for it. I, I, we are up for it. And more and more people are joining the movement. It's also different because it's the only one of these social justice movements where we're fighting for someone else that we have no vested interest in the success of the movement. You know, whereas the suffragettes were fighting for their own right to vote and same-sex couples were fighting for their own right to marry and um, black people were fighting for freedom. Uh, you know, in this case, we're fighting for for we have no our lives don't necessarily change on a personal level i mean spiritually they do of course but if animals have rights um and so that makes it different too i saw uh, victoria did you ever hear of the documentary film how to survive a plague yes about the aids crisis and you see yes it's about act up which was an activist group that emerged after it became clear that the government was going to ignore the AIDS epidemic because it was affecting primarily gay men. This was early on in the epidemic. And these were young people who were dying, literally. And so they took to the streets in the most provocative and aggressive ways because they had, they had nothing to lose. They were literally fighting for their lives. And that movie was so inspiring. Um, and it sort of gave me the courage to sort of exit my own comfort zone. You know, but I do often ask myself, if we were fighting for ourselves, would we be doing much more than we are? Um, and, uh, and I try and remind myself of that. You know, just because I'm not fighting for myself doesn't mean that I shouldn't exit my comfort zone and be just as provocative uh, for who we're fighting for. Oh, I like you so much. And we're here on the same island, so we have to meet. Thank you oh, so much, Donnie Moss. Everybody, check out theirturn.net. We'll put all of the URLs on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Our guests next week are a wonderful, wonderful animal rights proponent, Ray Sikora. She's kind of the conscience of the movement. She's kind of the female equivalent of John Pierre. If you know John Pierre, the wonderful trainer who's so egoless, Ray is like that. And we're going to be opening the, sh- the show with Chris Carr, crazy, crazy, sexy cancer Chris Carr. She's got a brand new book, Crazy Sexy Juice. Also, for everybody who was looking for Hope Bahanek to be on today um, with her fascinating topic about maybe we shouldn't even use the term factory farming, she had a little bit of time zone mix up so she will be on um, in a few weeks we'll let you know when that's going to happen and in the meantime thanks to everybody for listening thanks to unity online radio for being there and letting us get this message out and to all of you listening god bless you eat your veggies Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Are you ready for deeper spiritual breakthroughs? Have you wondered how to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life in practical ways? 
Do you feel your soul is calling you to deeper purposes? Join Reverend Galen McDowell live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Central for Truth Transforms, a discussion on how God within you, as you, is the power to transform your life. If you really believe that consciousness determines your experiences and that you are an individualized expression of God, join us as we help awaken and transform the consciousness of humanity. We will discuss, through lecture, live interviews and call-in questions, spiritual healing, prayer, prosperity, forgiveness, new thought views about eternal life, and much more. The world is waiting for your truth transformation, only on Unity Online Radio. You can choose to focus on what you perceive as lacking in your life, or you can change your outlook. You can become wise to wonderful ways of playing the game of life. Count your blessings. Instead of focusing on what you believe is missing, let yourself become aware of how truly blessed you already are. This is the way to build an attitude of gratitude. Give thanks for all of the abundance you're presently enjoying and for the abundance of every good thing that's on its way to you. Everything you need to be happy is already within you, waiting to be discovered. Unlimited happiness and fulfillment can be yours. Unlock the door to undiscovered treasure by building an attitude of gratitude. This law of life is brought to you by Unity. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. At Metaphysical Rock 2, we demystify metaphysics to help you live life at a deeper level. One of our key principles is the recognition that you always have the power to choose how you respond to any situation. Instead of asking, why did this happen to me? A better practice, which aligns with the metaphysical principles we share, is to ask yourself the question, how can I use this for good? We promise you'll experience a transformation in thinking that will reap huge dividends as you master the art of living metaphysically. For new perspective and spiritual insight, listen to Metaphysical Romp 2 with co-hosts Rev. Paul Hasselbeck, Rev. Bill Holton, and Rev. Cher Holton. Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Central Time, here on Unity Online Radio. Are you ready to live in joy? Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance, focused, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on a Course in Miracles, with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free, every Friday at 2 p.m. Central, here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. What is the key to happiness? Would you like to find the fountain of youth? How about all the money and love that you could handle? Well, my friends, it is there for you. You just need to strip off the false beliefs that keep your divine inheritance from being attracted into your life. You need to be real. Be vulnerable. Be naked. What are you waiting for? Let's get naked. This transformational program with Reverend Heidi Alfrey is an invitation to explore and remove the blocks that keep you from emotional freedom. Listen to Heidi and her revealing guests as they embrace the power of spiritual nakedness as a guaranteed way to live an authentic and transparent life. Expose yourself to your greatness on Mondays at 3 p.m. Central Time. Let's get naked. No dress code required. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You gotta get rid of your butt. It's bigger than it would appear. 
It hinders your forward movement when you keep bringing up the rear. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.